Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So you guys, you know, Cuba's in the news. Hades coming apart. I don't know what shoe is next to drop, but I think it's becoming quite clear that it was rational security that was holding the world together. You know, we were the kid with the proverbial finger in the dike and we're walking away and now everything's going to be flooded. Yeah, I, I, I would love to think that we were the ones holding it all together. But so then it really started to fall apart when Susan left is what you're saying. And now that yeah. we've now that we've announced it, like the whole world is just throwing up its hands. You know, just like they said about the Taliban, you know, if you announce a time for the withdrawal. They right. Just they just wait, wait you out. Uh, I think they said, you know, the Westerners have the watches, but we have the time. It was kind of like that for uh, for rational security. Yeah, one one more week, guys, we and just then the world falls apart. We were hanging up our spurs, and the world's like rubbing its hands like flies on shit. Maybe the aliens are going to come after we end next week. No, they're our friends. Yeah, sure. <laughs> You're welcome, world. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the We're Quitting Just in Time edition. Maybe this could be the You're Welcome World edition. <laughs> good luck. Thanks for all the fish. Yes. Getting out of Never Dodge. read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. What? I'm not going to start this week. Oh, nope. Shane. I'm disappointed. I mean, I, I mean, I'll read it eventually, but like, not today. It's not going to happen today. All right. And we don't have the answers to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything, so... Except that it involves like 42 or something. 42. That was close. <laughs> well, the world is just going straight to hell in a handbasket. But like, what else is new? Maybe the right way to think about it is this. We're quitting just as the world's getting interesting. Maybe the joke's on us. We wouldn't want to miss an interesting episode. So we're just hanging it up. So that we, we <laughs> I think we're leaving space for that that rising generation of national security yeah. podcasters yeah, coming up behind it's us. It's a share the That's mic it. situation. Yeah. Right, exactly. We're like the Constitutional Convention, and now it's time to like step aside. We're like George Washington stepping down after his term. That's <laughs> right. And setting a tradition. Oh, my God. I am here in the remote jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, guys. Hi, Shane. It's hey, a dude. very hot day in Washington today. Very hot and nice and cool in my house, although it's getting a little warm in my uh, podcasting studio. But on the, the podcast this studio. week, yes, indeed, historic protests rock Cuba. The ripple effects of an assassination linger in Haiti, and a former president warns the consequences of withdrawal from Afghanistan will be, quote, unbelievably bad. Okay. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, um, let us start with Cuba news in the neighborhood. So the country has been rocked by historic protests, people taking to the streets 
which is pretty astonishing in a communist dictatorship, let's just say that at the outset, but shouting freedom and other anti-government slogans, quoting here from the New York Times report out of Miami, thousands of Cubans took to the street in cities around the country on Sunday to protest food and medicine shortages in a remarkable eruption of discontent not seen in nearly 30 years. Um, the economy is kind of in shambles in Cuba right now, obviously, because the tourism that the country's economy depends on uh, is dried up in the way uh, in the midst of the pandemic. And there's a case of you know a surge of coronaviruses in Cuba itself. So, Tammy, let's start with how U.S. officials are responding to these protests. We've heard calls from the State Department for the Cuban government to respect people's right to protest and also a pretty predictably strong wave of support from members of Congress from both parties. So what's the terrain that the U.S. has to navigate here and how much is the American position likely to impact the outcome of what happens in Cuba? Yeah, so I, I think there are first a couple of things off the top that are really clear. One is that the Biden administration made a very clear choice not to, and you know, from the get-go, not just in the face of these protests, not to sort of continue the Obama engagement policy with the government of Cuba, but instead to sort of let um, sanctions and and uh, boycotts and so on continue and kind of put the issue on the back burner. So the protests are yet another foreign policy issue that the Biden administration did not want to be a major preoccupation coming and inserting itself onto the agenda. And look, that happens, like no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? But it is also an opportunity for the for the U.S. because like China, Cuba is one of those issues where there's a significant degree of bipartisan agreement. And so the Biden administration can talk about democracy and human rights and uh, the need to for the Cuban government to respect the will of the people. And Republican rhetoric from the Hill is going to sound very much the same. Aspiring Republican presidential candidates are going to sound the same. Um, and so it's not a wedge issue. Um, that's the first thing. But the second thing is like, okay, what what is the U.S. role in this situation, right? I mean, number one is that whenever there's significant unrest in Cuba, and especially when there's a government crackdown, the United States often faces a wave of refugees. Um, think about the Mariel Boatlift, for example. And the Cuban government has in the past used the possibility of such an outflow of refugees as leverage against the United States government. Like, don't exacerbate this crisis or you will be flooded by refugees, right? So they don't want to necessarily see an escalation. On the other hand, it is, of course, a welcome thing to see the Cuban people feeling you know, both strong enough uh, and courageous enough, but also, frankly, desperate enough to speak out publicly against their government. There's been a lot of news coverage about the role of the Internet in facilitating nationwide protests and sort of breaking down people's fear barrier. But there's no question that the government of Cuba has responded very, very harshly, as they always have in the past to public protest. And, you know, the United States is not going to do anything directly, kinetically, to to halt that crackdown. It hasn't um, previously, and, and it won't this time. And so, you know, I think whenever the United States government faces mass protests in an authoritarian adversary, 
Um, the immediate concern is number one, supporting people's protest activity and pressure on the government, but number two, making sure that the story doesn't become a story about the United States versus the government, but remains one of the citizens versus the government. And so I think that helps to explain some of the tempered reaction from the Biden administration, like, yes, we support the right to protest. I mean, we went through this in the Arab Spring as well. There was a lot of criticism of the Obama administration, the way it handled the 2009 Green Revolution in Iran. But the bottom line is you support the people who are protesting, you support their rights to protest, and you call on the government to respond. And that's the way you try to avoid making it about you. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add to that. Cuba is a unique country in the American ecosystem. Perhaps the only similar one is Iran, where you have a quite large, quite politically active emigre community that is unremittingly hostile to the regime in power. Uh, the difference, of course, between Cuba and Iran is that Cuba is 90 miles from our shores and Iran is quite far away. But the similarity is that the United States represents for a lot, you know, for the emigrate community, which is a lot of which is here, and for a lot of people in these countries, something positive. And it's pretty easy to blow that, given the United States' history of unwise in involvements in both countries. You know, we, we have a lot of baggage, but we also have a lot of goodwill, actually. And, you know, eventually the Cuban government is going to fall. And it's, you know, I, of course, I've been saying that since 1991 or something. Eventually you'll be right. Eventually I'll be right, you know. And the reason is the same reason that Czechoslovakia fell and that Albania fell and that, you know, which is that people don't want to live under communist dictatorships. I, I, so I think the waiting game that successive U.S. administrations have played with respect to Cuba is the right one. I did not have a problem with the Obama administration's, you know, decision to normalize-ish relations. But I do think, you know, keeping the embargo in place and keeping, you know, a, a pretty, you know, tight lid on U.S.-Cuban relations actually plays an important role in, you know, demarcating what the value to the people of Cuba of getting rid of this government would be. And I do think that at some point in the not too distant future, that will happen and, you know, there will be a great opening up of Cuba and it'll be something beautiful to behold. Yeah, I guess the only other thing I would add is that, you know, this is not your grandfather's communist dictatorship, right? The Cuban government, even when Fidel Castro was still in power, had to begin to experiment with allowing private sector activity with slightly more liberal international economic engagement. And so there are a lot of Cubans who have small businesses, who have bed and breakfasts, who have restaurants. And unfortunately, the nature of the consequences of the COVID pandemic on the global economy is that it's those private sector empowered Cubans who got the biggest brunt of the COVID shutdown. And so I think, you know, the challenge for the United States and for other countries, including other countries in this hemisphere who want to support 
democracy in Cuba and freedom for the Cuban people is, you know, what can you do creatively to engage those people? Those are the people who have the interest in, you know, transforming their country fully away from communist dictatorship. Those are the people that the Obama administration was trying to reach by normalizing with the Cuban government to gain more access to the Cuban people. And so, you know, if the overarching policy principle is support the people in their aspirations, but you don't want to re-engage the government, then you have to find more creative ways to do it. Can we just dwell on the politics of this for a moment? I mean, it's almost impossible to have a discussion about U.S. policy towards Cuba absent the politics of Florida and particularly of South Florida and Miami and the Cuban exile population there, but also people of Cuban descent who've, who've lived in Americans who've lived in Florida for generations. You know, Joe Biden lost Florida. Uh, largely thanks to what I think most people thought was a, a an underwhelming performance by the Democrat in South Miami. And so this strikes me as that there's an incentive. I just don't know which way it goes here for the for President Biden. Is it engage more in the style of the Obama administration and try to reach those people that Tammy is talking about and risk Donald Trump and Republicans saying you're appeasing the government and this is a weak policy? Or is it to go kind of more hardline and adopt something that frankly sounds more like a typical Republican position of isolate the government, try to undermine it? And in that sense, you know, perhaps, you know, engender more goodwill among Cubans and Cuban Americans in South Florida. Not that President Biden would need Florida to, you know, be reelected. He obviously didn't win at the last go round, but it seems like it sort of is a bit on a knife's edge there. And, you know, Democrats do not want to discount that state going forward. Yeah, I don't think there is a winning policy electorally here with respect to the Florida Cuban community. There may realistically not be a losing strategy either since no one's gonna, no one is suggesting that the right approach is to cozy up to you know, the, the new Cuban president. No, nobody's suggesting that really. And nobody's suggesting that the United States shouldn't support the protesters. So there's no, I, I, I actually think the range of policy latitude is very narrow. It's between being more vocal and less vocal in support of protesters and being more or less denunciatory of the regime. That said, at the end of the day, the Miami Cuban, Florida, South Florida Cuban population at least the older generations of it is a very solid Republican constituency. And, you know, I don't think that's, you know, likely to change based on how Joe Biden handles this situation. Well, speaking of other really easy to solve problems in the Caribbean, it's just, I mean, it's a great place to vacation and just like the policy conundrums are so minimal, don't you think? You know, we dealt with Grenada. Oh, 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 great. Yeah. Let's not make that our threshold. Our bar. Yeah. The situation in Haiti continues to be uh, chaotic uh, and unclear following the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse. I have lost track of all of the characters in the weird, like out of a bad spy thriller strains of the assassination plot that apparently involve like are we now like at like Colombian mercenaries? Colombian like, mercenaries and U.S. doctors uh, showing right. up 
and uh, apparently not knowing that they were part of an assassination team. <laughs> Nobody told me about the assassination. Yeah, we just thought it was a a barbecue. Sure, sure. It's like that. What was that that concert that went terribly wrong? Oh my god, the fire festival. Anyway, yeah, it's, it was uh, a fire festival. Ultimate. Yeah, uh, not 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 to make light of this, but go check out Scott Anderson's uh, podcast on this with uh, Lawfare, where he talked uh, to a, just a terrific, lucid expert on uh, on all things Haiti, who kind of laid out very succinctly kind of all the, the narrative of this. But we're going to talk, I think, mostly here about sort of again the the U.S. piece of this. Uh, just reading from the AP's latest reporting on this, uh, the White House on Sunday dispatched representatives from the Justice Department, the Department of Homeland Security, and the National Security. Security Council to meet with Haiti's interim Prime Minister, Claude Joseph, the designated Prime Minister, Ariel Henry, and Joseph Lambert, the head of its dismantled Senate, whom supporters have named as provisional president in a challenge to Joseph. Uh, and White House officials said Haiti's request for the U.S. to deploy troops was under review. So, Ben, start with the issue of this request to deploy troops. What interest does the United States have in sending military forces to Haiti to stabilize its government? Well, so, of course, the United States has done that once before, or more than once, actually, but in in our living memories, uh, at the time of the sort of restoration of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, uh, we sent in a stabilizing uh, force I think the United States doesn't actually have an interest in doing this, which is why it has not happened. And, you know, I, I think, you know, quite apart from whatever state interests there might be in the abstract, Joe Biden has, you know, talked about, you know, ending forever wars and he's, you know, proudly disengaging from Afghanistan. It's not a great time to say, oh, I have a I have a great morass to get involved in. Let's go stabilize the nation of Haiti. Um, And so I think the likelihood that we will do anything more than something very small and very token is minimal. The interest on the part of the Haitian government in, in such a request is that, you know, though people on the left have a hard time believing this, the truth is that the United States in Haiti in modern times has been something of a stabilizer and and something of an honest broker. And so, you know, you have a genuine collapse of governance here. You have a an assassination of the president that showed up claiming to be the drug enforcement agency, got let in by the palace guard, and nobody really knows who they are or what they who they were representing. Uh, and under those circumstances, oh, and nobody knows who the, the proper government is now. And by the way, the president who was assassinated had, you know, not left office when he was supposed to. So, you know, you're, the governance thing really isn't going very well there. And having, you know, having a stabilizing presence, uh, I, I think probably looks attractive to you know, Haitians who are interested in some kind of stability. So I think that's the genesis of the request. But I don't really see why Joe Biden would grant it, honestly. And I would be surprised if it happened. 
So I, I think Ben is correct to note that, you know, not only this administration, but the American people in general are not interested in another nation building mission, if you will, for the U.S. military abroad. But I'm not sure that's actually what's at issue here. I think that the United States has been deeply involved in Haiti. I mean, in a way, this is not a forever war. This is a forever stabilization project that has been mainly implemented over decades by U.S. Foreign Service officers, um, by U.S. humanitarian organizations, by USAID, and just a tremendous amount of work to try and um, move Haiti from the period of military takeover, which you may remember, you know, back in the George H.W. Bush administration, wasn't it? Or the Clinton administration, I guess. It's the beginning of the Clinton The beginning of the Clinton administration when Colin Powell sort of assembled a force and, and used coercive diplomacy, the threat of American invasion to get the generals to step down and reinstate the democratically elected president. But Haiti has never achieved a completed consolidated transition to democracy. It has also, in addition to political division and corruption, it's also suffered horrific natural disasters, outbreaks of disease, and let's not forget horrific abuse by the UN forces that, uh, that were sent there to help stabilize. So stabilization in Haiti has been a really fraught prospect and external military support has not always been the best pathway, but it also hasn't been the main U.S. policy tool. So I just want to clarify that up front. Secondly, you know, I, I think that part of the request by the guy, the prime minister who is claiming to be in power right now for American troops is because he wants U.S. troops on his side of the political argument about what happens now. And Haitian civil society, which had mobilized against the now assassinated president's extended term in office, are saying, we don't want to have elections right away. We need a new elections law. We need a process to clean up the voter rolls. We need a chance to have a real meaningful election with good transparent rules and fair, everybody having a fair chance to compete. So let's not rush this. And the political elites are interested in having elections quickly so that they can have a democratic mandate and go back, you know, and stay in their nice, comfortable seats. And so I also think from that perspective, it's wise for the United States not to, you know, either consciously or unconsciously pick a side in that argument, but instead support those in Haitian society who are looking for a more durable, constructive democratic path forward. Yeah, I agree with that. I just, just to clarify, I didn't mean to suggest that this would be a forever war kind of situation. I meant if you were Joe Biden, you would be allergic to anything right now that could be portrayed that way. Right? Sure. Like just as he's getting us out of Afghanistan, he's, you know, putting troops into Haiti and how are we ever going to get them out of there, right? Out of one into another. And the, the, the argument would be silly, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't be salient. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, maybe just to put an even finer point on this too, and we're kind of talking around all these issues, but just to put it bluntly, just like, does the, does the political condition of Haiti really matter all that much to the United States? It matters in a few respects. Uh, the first is that like Cuba, Haiti is capable of launching very, very large refugee flows um, that end up in South Florida. And unlike Cuba, uh, we don't have a policy of admitting every Haitian who puts a, a foot on U.S. soil. And so you end up with these questions of what to do with large numbers of people, and it becomes a significant either in some cases we ended up storing large numbers of people at Guantanamo, actually. And in other cases, we've put people on ships and taken them back to Haiti. But it's, you know, the refugee flows are, are important crises when they happen. The second thing is, this is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, the images from it are consistently upsetting and uh, there is a significant humanitarian set of crises that people rightly care about. And I, I guess you could say it doesn't matter in the sense of it doesn't deeply affect the United States, except that it does affect people in the United States who have family in Haiti. There's a large Haitian community in, in this country and and it you know affects people's consciences because it's nearby and and there's a, and there's television from it. So I I I think it does matter in the way that, you know, anything close to you matters. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I would, I mean, there are about 2 million Haitian Americans at this point. And in certain congressional districts, they're a very important constituency. But more broadly, there's a historical linkage here because of the history of Haiti, of its anti-colonialist revolution, the history of Blacks in the Americas. And I think that it is... All of that has connected Haiti to the United States for a long time politically. And I think all of that are reasons why the United States has invested so much in attempting to support Haitian uh, humanitarian needs and political development. And it's, I know so many Foreign Service officers and development workers who have spent time in Haiti over the years, and all of them come away, you know, scarred by the degree of trauma on that island and uh, and one can only hope that you know this particular crisis is the the time when at last they can be launched onto a better trajectory all right let's go further away from home to another place where the united states has invested two decades now of 
of blood and treasure. Uh, in Afghanistan, criticism continues to mount over President Biden's decision to withdraw U.S. forces from that country, a decision he recently defended quite forcefully in remarks that he made, uh, also clarifying that uh, the last troops will be leaving at the end of August, I believe, is the, now the, the new timeline. So he wanted to be out before the anniversary of the September 11 attacks, of course. Former President Bush has said, quote, the consequences are going to be unbelievably bad, with regards to the withdrawal. We can talk about that. Of course, President Bush being the president on whose orders U.S. forces first went into Afghanistan 20 years ago. Um, and there's also the issue of getting Afghans who helped U.S. forces, including interpreters, out of the country uh, and perhaps onto the United States where they could be resettled and safely continue their lives because they will obviously be targets for the Taliban. And we've spent a lot of time on the podcast in recent weeks talking about the, you know, the, the takeover, essentially, it looks like uh, of Afghanistan that the Taliban is making. It's also the U.S. intelligence community's assessment that the government could fall within six months of the United States leaving. President Biden has also said that these uh, Afghans who helped U.S. forces are are going to be resettled maybe in another country first before they come on to the U.S. Ben, let's start with you. I doubt anyone thought this withdrawal was going to be easy. It strikes me, though, as exceedingly messy and perhaps even rushed. And I mentioned that timeline of September 11th, which I think is, you know, perhaps one could argue that is looking more symbolic than necessary at this point. Um, what do you think? Well, when they first announced this, I said on rational security that it was going to be, it was a terrible idea. And I thought it was going to end very badly. And I continue to think that. I think everything that's happened between then and now bears out my initial anger and disappointment at this decision. It's the one thing that Joe Biden has done as president that I am just viscerally opposed to. The only thing I can say in defense of it is that it's marginally less irresponsible than what Donald Trump was planning to do. That said, uh, that is not the standard by which we should judge it. It's going to cause the enslavement and oppression of the entire female population of Afghanistan. It is going to, if we are lucky, the terrorism component of it that it could generate will be controllable from outside. But I don't know that to be true, and I'm not confident of it. I don't think the Taliban have moderated significantly in their essential orientation. And I believe the cost of the so-called forever war in blood and U.S. treasure and was exceedingly modest in the later years of it. We had uh, a few thousand troops there. I believe we were taking virtually no casualties for the last couple of years. And the difference between that presence and not having that presence is the resurgent Taliban perhaps taking over the country, certainly taking over large swaths of the country or not. The very least we could do is resettle the people to whom we have blood debt. But I remain just of the view that this is a terrible thing. And I hope very much that it that George W. Bush is wrong, but I tend to agree with him. 
So a couple of things. I mean, first on the specific issue of Afghans who worked with the United States and are now faced with extreme vulnerability as the U.S. and NATO departs, there has been a tremendous amount of focus on people who worked with the U.S. military. And I would only say that there are also hundreds, if not thousands, of Afghans who worked with the U.S. embassy, who worked with USAID, who worked with grantees and contractors on development in Afghanistan. And, you know, they are at least as vulnerable, if not more so, because they were the ones who were building girls' schools, for example, and advocating for changes in, you know, female status in, in laws or, you know, things like that. And so the special immigrant visa program that was set up for uh, Iraqi and Afghan partners who worked with the U.S. military doesn't apply to those people. And so we still have, I think, a challenge of figuring out a solution for all of those people. The Biden administration has said now that they're launching this uh, airlift, essentially, that will bring Afghan partners who are already in the special immigrant visa pipeline to bring them out of the country before the U.S. finishes its withdrawal. But I think we need to understand that that's a fraction of the of the challenge that we're talking about here. More broadly on the withdrawal, I, I mean, look, I the whole thing, I think, is it compels a lot of introspection. It is heartrending in a lot of ways. I also have been thinking a lot about, you know, how Biden always says, don't compare me to the Lord Almighty, compare me to the alternative. <laughs> you know, you did that a lot during the presidential campaign. And I think you know, the fact of the matter is that he inherited this agreement from the Trump administration on U.S. withdrawal and the Taliban uh, were holding back from attacking U.S. forces because of that agreement. And if he if the Biden administration had come in and said, actually, we're not going to honor that agreement, I think it's almost certain that the Taliban would have been attacking U.S. forces again the next day. And so the choice that the Biden administration faced, in fact, was not leaving several thousand troops there to do as much good as they could or couldn't do. And it's clear that President Biden concluded that they couldn't do that much more good. But even had they stayed, they would not have stayed in the same situation they've been in for the last year. They would have stayed in the face of a Taliban onslaught. And so I think, you know, I think the realistic alternative would have been, okay, we're going to keep that presence. And then maybe, oh, we're going to have to augment that presence because it's under threat. And we have to protect our people. And then are you down again the slippery slope towards something, you know, much more involved? And it doesn't make me happy to, to do that analysis. But I think that's, you know, I do think that's a realistic analysis. This outcome doesn't make me happy either. But, you know, I, I think that we have to understand the limits of our ability to actually make change using the U.S. military tool. And I think that there is a lot more that not only the United States, but the world could be doing to try and mitigate some of the consequences of our choice to withdraw, including, you know, a real empowered, whether it's U.N. sponsored or other multilateral peace effort that as part of this NATO withdrawal, is pushing the Taliban to continue negotiations with the elected government of Afghanistan and making clear to them that conquest is not going to earn them international legitimacy. Um, and it may be that with the withdrawal of NATO forces, it will be somewhat easier to get, say, the Russians on board with that kind of effort 
than if we were still there. I disagree with a great deal of that. And let me start with the idea that the Taliban cares about international legitimacy. They uh, did in the 90s, and they I think they probably do even more now. You know, they when in the 90s, when they blew up the Buddhas and the world had a had there was a big outcry and they issued an apology for not doing it sooner. And look, the Taliban will not negotiate in good faith with the Afghan government because they don't have to. They can walk in and take what they want and they're showing that and that's what they're doing. Uh, it is very convenient for the Biden administration that there is a pre-existing agreement that Trump negotiated that they can say ties their hands, just as Obama had a pre-existing withdrawal agreement from Iraq that he pled tied his hands. That said, uh, the Taliban is in breach of this agreement. And if, if they wanted to not honor it as a result of that, they could, and nobody would say boo. The reason they're honoring it is because they want to get out. And Biden has been nothing but honest about that. And I respect the honesty. I think the decision is going to be a disaster. Can I ask, too, we've talked about the withdrawal here, but there's an expectation, I think, embedded in all of this that if, you know, terrorist groups find a new foothold in Afghanistan or uh, things get dramatically worse for, for U.S. interests, that we could contemplate sending troops back in or reengaging in some way. It's the I mean, Gaza kind of approach. It works great. So, okay, so continue on that, because I think that, you know, we should spend just a moment talking about the possibility that there is a tremendously high bar for going back in and re-engaging. I think a lot of people presume like, oh, well, we'll keep an eye on things in Afghanistan. And if things get out of line, we'll go in there and, you know, crack some skulls or set things right. I mean, I, I don't presume that's going to be the case. And I, I wonder if what it would take for us to recommit forces to Afghanistan, frankly, would be another major terrorist attack. Yeah, I mean, so there's there's a truth and a silliness to the idea that you can re-engage. The truth is, for small bore missions, like, you know, if you have good intel, you can hit targets. That's what we do in Yemen. It's what we did in the Fatah in Pakistan for a long time. It's what we've done a fair bit of in the Horn of Africa. And you don't need to have a large number of troops on the ground if you have good intelligence and you're willing to to do that. That's the, the element of truth there. You can sometimes even launch very ambitious missions, see uh, the Abbottabad raid, right? The falsehood of it is the, the fundamental problem in Afghanistan is that the government lacks stability and lacks firm control over territory over time. And establishing that by air power is just implausible. And if people who think that, you know, they can, like people have overstated what you could do with air power since World War I. And the grandiose idea is that you can accomplish giant policy objectives through air power alone or through pinprick interventions particularly in big countries and afghanistan is a is a large country with difficult terrain is just foolish and 
you know, there's a reason there's, there's nothing like showing up and being there to be effective. Oh boy. That's a statement to end the podcast on, isn't it? Yeah, especially since we're like the United States. We're, we're, we're walking the, away. We're abandoning the field here, turning over the keys to Bagram. Oh, God. One more week. One more week. One more week. But next week's a special episode, of course. Uh, but let's do, uh, let's do object lessons. Uh, ben, do you want to start us off? Sure. So as many rational security listeners know, I have been with my friend Sarah Longwell doing a podcast on uh, a French village, which is a wonderful French television show about a, a fictitious town uh, under the German occupation during World War II. And the other day, I went back to Brookings for the first time in a good long time, and there was a FedEx package for me. And it was from a, a gentleman who had uh, forged, I think is the right word, a complete set of Vichy France identity documents for me. <laughs> um, and he had made one for Sarah too. And they are exquisitely good. And there is a identity card. There's also a German travel pass so that, you know, if, if I ever get stuck in Vichy France, I can get through German roadblocks. And there's even a Vichy France uh, flag. And so on last week's French Village podcast, Sarah and I invited this gentleman to join us on the show and uh, talk about how he learned, how he came to be a, a Vichy document forger. That, that's going to happen uh, on Friday. And so I just want to uh, invite everybody to check out the French Village podcast and find out how I came to be the proud owner of forged Vichy France identity documents. I love that you're going to have somebody on to ask him about his history as a forger, as <laughs> if the fact that they were like Vichy France doesn't mean like he's a forgerer. I mean, he has a, quite a skill. That's very it's kind of awesome. Don't let the Vichy part, France part throw you off. Like, what else can this guy do? <laughs> they're, they're they're good docs. I, I think I think they would fool they would fool your average uh, Nazi German soldier. <laughs> yeah, great. So now, when someone says your papers, please, you don't have to be anxious. That's right. Like, I I can know. respond if they say it in, in German. If they say it in French, I, I think I left them in my hotel room. Isn't that the line in Casablanca? <laughs> I think that is right. Um, Tammy, why don't you go next? Okay, so um, as this is like part object lesson, part public service announcement. As you all know, the wonders of technology uh, remind us of what we were doing a year ago and five years ago and so on, whether it's Facebook memories or now that little feature on your iPhone that shows you photos from your photo album. And so I just got the most nostalgic photo from my iPhone photo album popped up in my memories three years ago. This beautiful, do you remember where this was, Ben? Beautiful photograph I took out the window of an airplane flying above Venice. Oh. Uh, you can't see it, Shane, but I emailed it to you. And it just, it made me think, man, it was so great to travel. And I cannot wait until I am able to do that again. But here's the PSA 
oh my people. If you are one of those who is planning to do some travel this fall, or maybe even before the summer ends, I urge you to check the validity of your passport because a lot of countries won't let you in unless you have at least six months left in your passport validity. And the backup to get your U.S. passport renewal is like three months long right now. There is no expedited service. There's no same day, go to the office and pick it up the same day because you have a plane ticket the day after that. Ain't none of that available. So if you're planning to travel, you're going to have to do it the regular old way through the mail and you better leave yourself at least 12 weeks. I wish you all safe and healthy travels. This has been a real bad problem, hasn't it? I have friends who are trying to get it, uh, their passport renewed, and they can't do it. No, there's a huge backlog. Good public service announcement. Uh, My object lesson, um, a site that I was very, very happy to see. I often like to go down for a bike ride on the National Mall, which is pretty close to our house. And I went out on Monday, and I'll show you a picture here, guys. Maybe you can see. I don't know if you can see it if I hold it up to the thing. It's the U.S. Capitol building. Can you tell me what's missing? No fences. Fence. Woo! Fences. I went down. I knew that they were taking the fences down. I, I it had slipped my mind when I went out. Actually, on Monday morning, I had stopped in front of the lawn of the Capitol. There was a riding lawnmower out. There was the sound of a lawnmower, the smell <laughs> of freshly cut grass. That's so peaceful. Not a fence in sight. So, did you storm the Capitol? <laughs> totally. I just drove the bike straight in. Yeah, I think <laughs> screaming. I think that's the Nancy. only. You know, it's like just, just like, just like the Taliban. You know, waits us out. We waited till the fence came down. Now's our chance. Let's get no, it. No, no. Look, guys. I mean, for for all our listeners who are outside DC, and a lot of you may know this, but you know, this is a small city, and those national landmarks and the beautiful green spaces around them are are public parks. And the yeah. fact that we haven't been able to access Lafayette Square and the Capitol grounds has been sad and miserable during COVID and spring yeah. and summer. So this really is just a glorious return to normalcy. Yeah, and for people who live on Capitol Hill too, it was uh, you know they were there was kind of like being in an armed encampment a little bit for going around their neighborhood. So it was a very welcome sign to see those fences come down. It was great. It was a beautiful sight less beautiful it's the end of our podcast not forever remember we have one more week next week is going to be a very special episode of rational and then we are out of here yeah but we'll (laughs) we will do a proper farewell to all of we will next week is going to be a little bit different i think we're going to we're still working out the final format but it's going to be uh fun and unusual won't be necessarily the news roundup but come stay it'll be like it'll be like one of those retrospectives of a sitcom we're like we do lots of montages of like moments. <laughs> Can we do the wavy screen like dream sequence totally. thing? Totally. Can we do a totally. musical number? Wait, I think we might have a musical number in we'll store. Meet again. No, you've sung that song so many times. Yeah, I know it's part of the it show. just loses its its shine. I don't know. You have to well, come that's, up with well, that's why we're ending the show because you know <laughs> he's, he's out <laughs> of songs. Because you're, out, you're out of farewell songs. I like yeah. that's good enough reason. Oh my goodness! Rational Security is of course a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at Lawfare Blog. Dot com. You can buy, I, I took a bunch of the old fences from the Capitol and we're selling them. Awesome. If you need a fence or a Jersey barrier, just go to lawfarefences.post. Yeah, if you need to keep Shane out of your house and grounds. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because I'm there on my bike if you tell me where you live. It has a rational security plus a, a, a shame crossed out. <laughs> no shame. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. We are still on Facebook. I wonder, should we just stay on Facebook forever? Yes, yeah. like everybody else. It's like, yeah, ghosts on Facebook. We should occasionally tweet from the <laughs> rational security account saying things like, not dead yet. <laughs> Bring out your dead. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, whenever you download the podcast, please leave a rating and review, even for this next last week. I mean, seriously. Make our last one the best ever. Leave like a hundred fake reviews. <laughs> Just do it. Just let it all rip. Yeah, let's, let's see if in the last week of Rational Security, we can rock it to number one on the Apple <laughs> podcast on the strength of fake reviews. I think this is this is the challenge to the audience. Oh, Get you it's know, a lot to ask. It's like people. the three wolf it's like the three wolf <laughs> moon shirt scam on on, on yeah, Amazon. So. Make it happen, people. Ascribe mystical properties to rational security. Please do. Oh yes, please do get Marianne Williamson involved. Your favorite. Remember her? <sighs> Over any hill, man. Our audio engineer this week was Hampton Shit too. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Joe Biden, who, much like the 1990s one hit wonder Citizen King, has seen better days. Oh, oh nice. I, I just, it just got into my head, and now I have to make it go away. Sophia Yando will help me do that as we listen to her beautiful kids as she plays this out. On behalf of my good friends, Tamar Kaufman-Wittis and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you one more time next week. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.